0: Please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23 as we continue our teaching series through the life of Jesus. And when you arrive, let's stand together for the reading of Scripture. You at home as well, I invite you to stand. Matthew chapter 23, verse 1. God, we open our heart like soil that is thirsty for the rain and the seed and the sun. We open to the spirit and the truth of Jesus. Come spirit and come truth. Let us bear fruit 30, 60, or even a hundredfold. Matthew 23, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his apprentices, the rabbis or the teachers of the Torah and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats at the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah, The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Read that last line, verse 12, with me out loud. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Take a seat. Have you ever been hurt by a pastor or a church leader or a church? From up close, you got to know the pastor behind the scenes, and it turned out he or she was a very different person in private than in public, and it wrecked you. It upset a deep fissure in your soul. Or, just from far away, the dramatic fall of yet another celebrity pastor gone viral on the internet, which is fast becoming an American pastime, pastors who were household names turn out to be the proverbial, in Jesus' language, wolf in sheep's clothing. Have you ever been hurt by me, something I said or did to you or to our church? I'm sure I have at least let you down on a point or two or a thousand. Now, I'm not asking you to email me your list of grievances. Ignorance is bliss for me at this point, and I'm not that ignorant. It's been a long year, and I am tired, and I am tender. I'm just asking you to honestly face the pain that pastors, those we look to, to lead us and guide us into deeper life with God often cause harm and at times more harm than good. We live in a time of widespread decline in faith in Jesus and in the church. Every year millions of millennials walk away from the church and millions more Gen Z were never there to begin with. Please note this is a Western phenomenon, not a global one. The Church of Jesus is exploding around the world, in particular with young people and women and people of color. This is an issue here in America. But tragically, many people walk away from the church because of pastors, not in spite of them. Now, pastors, I mean that in the broadest sense of the word as leaders in the church are often part of the problem, not just the solution. Now, there's much that could be said about that to nuance that statement out. A lot of the pain is perception and not reality. Some of it's the millennial snowflake thing. A ton of it, in my experience, is Western anti-authoritarianism. The phrase spiritual abuse is thrown around a lot and as a pastor I often hear that accusation against another one and then start to ask questions and I realize, oh, what you're calling spiritual abuse is there was a loving spiritual authority who found out you're living with your boyfriend or your girlfriend and in love confronted you on it and was actually following the New Testament injunction to not allow intentional sin in the church without repentance. So there's all sorts of reasons. A lot of it's just clickbaity news stuff where we hear about every single pastor gone wrong and we hear nothing about the tens of thousands of men and women who serve and love very well over decades. So there's a lot that we could say, go down the rabbit hole, but still, even if you nuance it out, it's still not all that pretty to look at. Still, the reality is a lot of people with my job, a lot of people, and at times myself, cause harm. And when we are hurt by a pastor, we're hurt at the deepest place of who we are. It's similar to a mother or a father. It's this deep, and that's kind of what a pastor is. It's a form of reparenting in the family of God. And we're hurt at this deep part where we meet God. And in doing so, that is where we meet ourselves. But this dynamic is nothing new. It goes back thousands of years to before time. We're nearing the end of Matthew's gospel, and in context, if you're new to the story, Jesus is in Jerusalem, it's the week before his death, and he's going back and forth with the religious leaders of the day who are about to arrest him on trumped-up charges and then execute him in just a few days. Last week, I left out a detail in chapter 22, if you look back at verse 34, we read that the Pharisees, quote, got together. We miss it in the English translation, and because we're not first century Hebrews, but that phrase, got together together was a catchphrase. It's what our friend Dr. Tim Mackey calls a hyperlink back to that most of Jesus' audience would have caught or Matthew's audience would have caught back to Psalm 2, quote, the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and his anointed. This is provocative. Matthew is saying that the religious leaders of the day are in the place of the pagan rulers in Psalm 2 who band together in resistance against God and his Messiah. That's intense. Elites and those in power have long had a tenuous relationship with God and his Messiah, Jesus, because Jesus is a threat to the status quo. If Jesus is the Messiah, that means elites are not. If he is the way, that means this program that you can buy for this price is not. Elites, secular and religious, then and now, have the most to lose from the gospel's claim that Jesus and Jesus only is Lord. And while there are many elites in the West who follow Jesus, and I thank God for that, it's no surprise that as a general rule, the poor and the powerless tend to be open to Jesus, and the rich and the powerful, in particular clustered in urban cities like ours, tend to be closed off. And yet, even though he was hurt by the religious leaders of the day, and not like just in his emotions, he was killed by them. He stayed true to God, to scripture, and even to the church. In a time when deconstruction is the cultural tide that we swim in and disillusionment with pastors and churches in general is widespread and at times well-earned. There is a lot that we can learn from Jesus in the text right in front of you. Let's just work through it line by line. Again, verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples or apprentices, the teachers of the law, or some of your translations have the scribes, and the Pharisees, which was a kind of sect in first century religious Judaism, sit in Moses' seat so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. Be careful to do it but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach." Now, a little background. Moses' seat was a literal chair in the synagogue where the rabbi would teach from, but it was also a metaphor for how the teachers of the Torah stood in the place of Moses. Similar to Moses, their job was to interpret Scripture and God's commands for the people to obey and do so well the Bible was and still is complex enough and long enough and ancient enough that we need people with expertise to interpret it and teach it. Literally what I'm doing for you right now. I spent two days in Matthew 23 alone, not to mention years in Bible college and seminary, not to mention how many years of my life spent reading books. My job is to do what you don't have time for and then to teach Scripture. Jesus is not against that. He's not against Scripture. He's not against teachers of Scripture. He's not against, quote, organized church. He was in, quote, organized church every single Sabbath. He was a teacher of Scripture. And in a few paragraphs at the end, he goes on to say he will, quote, send teachers of the law, the exact same phrase, to the church. He will send scribes to the church. He's not even against what the Pharisees were preaching In fact, a lot of scholars argue that Jesus was a Pharisee and that this is insider critique and that's why Jesus' tone is so harsh. Whether or not that's true or not, for sure Jesus was reading the Torah in a very similar way to how Pharisees were reading the Torah in first century Israel. His beef is not with their theology. His beef is not with what they were preaching. It's that they were not practicing what they were preaching, the same could be said of many of us teachers today. The issue isn't their theology, which is often biblical, and we need to, in Jesus' own language, quote, be careful to obey it. The issue is their lack of integrity. Next comes a few examples. By the way, just this is not fun to teach when you are the person that Jesus is teaching on right here. For they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, not their own, But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to help them. Jesus is most likely referring to the Mishnah, which I mentioned last week. It was a group of teachings that grew up around the Torah and kind of rabbinic Judaism that added a complex legal code of 1,500 extra commands on top of the hundreds of commands in what we call the Old Testament and put them on equal footing. It started out, we think, well-intentioned. They called it building a fence around a Torah. A lot of people think that the Pharisees' etymology goes back to Ezra. If you've read the book of Ezra, who was all about like, how do we obey scripture, obey the commandments of God? But over the centuries, it turned into a legalistic headache that no one could live up to. Imagine trying to keep like thousands of commands, not even the Pharisees. Verse five, everything they do is done for people to see, or one translation has, quote, everything they do is for show, to be seen by people. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long phylacteries, or in Hebrew the word was tefillin, were small leather boxes still in use in Orthodox Judaism today, with the great Shema from Deuteronomy 6 rolled up inside them, and tassels, or tidzit in Hebrew, were rope strands that now are worn on a prayer shawl. In Jesus' day were most likely just worn on the edge of your sleeve or your garment as a visual cue to pray, similar to the rosary in the Catholic tradition or the Eastern Orthodox prayer rope. They were based on a literal reading of Deuteronomy 6 in the great Shema that we read last week, quote, fix these words of mine, the Shema, in your hearts and minds, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. They were so serious about God's law that they literally did this. And Jesus is not against phylacteries or tassels. In fact, depending on how you translate the Greek, it seems that Jesus himself wore tassels. He's against religion for show spirituality for a stage. As the New Testament scholar R.T. France put it in his commentary, quote, their religious practices were designed to win the approval of other people rather than of God. Rather than directing people's attention to God, they were distracting people from God. They were replacing self with God in religion. Not only that, but six, they loved the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. Seating was a very elaborate cultural custom in Jesus' day. Tables were shaped like a U with the host at the head, and where you sat at the table, whether you were right to the right or to the left, one place away, two places away, ten places away, said a lot about kind of the sign of your status in the community. Like, I, like best I can think of is I used to play in indie rock bands for years, and there was always like indie angst and drama around the order of the show, like in particular if it was a local show and you weren't on tour, who's the headliner? Who's the middle band and who's the opener? You do not want to be the opener, right? Unless if you're opening for Coldplay, like if it's just an indie thing. And so there's all this drama because whether you were the opener or the middle act or the headliner said a lot about your status as events. The same human dynamic at play in religious leaders of Jesus' day. Verse 7, they love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. One scholar called this quote, all the fame that a small community can afford. Right, this is before Instagram and the internet. Rabbi, in small communities to this day where power and wealth are limited, titles are often a very big deal. The Pharisees loved to be called Rabbi, which literally means my great one, and was used not just for teachers, but for the best teachers of the day. But Jesus goes on, eight, you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher, an oblique way of kind of referring to himself, and you are all brothers, your family. Here comes Jesus' egalitarian sensibilities, right? You're on equal footing with each other. And nine, do not call anyone on earth father for you have one father and he is in heaven. Now, Pharisees, he's most likely not saying you can't like wish your dad a happy Father's Day in a few weeks. Our day is coming, dads. Pharisees were also called Abba, the Aramaic word for father, by their disciples who were likened to their children. Jesus is saying, We're family, yes, but God is our father. Not your rabbi, not your pastor in our language. God is your father. Ten, nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The word instructor is hard to translate into English. It means mentor or even master. It was used for the rabbi who was the head of the school that was attached to the synagogue that was called the Beit Talmud or the house of learning. Now, Jesus' prohibition against titles, or the use of titles for religious leaders, is a bit shocking when you consider that in spite of the plain text in front of you, a lot of us do exactly what he said not to do. Particularly the use of the title Father, and I have great respect for the Catholic tradition. You all, if you've been around my teaching, that's not a secret. In the New Testament itself, Paul regularly likens pastors, likens them to fathers and mothers. He's not scared of the metaphor at all, but there is not one example of anyone calling him Father Paul or Pastor Paul. Pastor is a verb most of the time in the New Testament, not a noun. It's something that you do, not something that you are, and most definitely not a title In our tradition, we don't call leaders fathers, but we still love our titles. Pastor, which is not a title in the New Testament, is used as a title all over America. Pastor so-and-so, pastor and -and so-and-so. In our church, we have pastors. We even use the word pastor in our job titles. Like if you go to our website, I think I'm the pastor for vision and teaching. Not for long, but I am for now. (laughs) But we are not called (laughs) too soon, sorry. (laughs) I'm tired. But we are not called pastor. If you call me pastor John Mark, I will do my best to graciously say just John Mark. Thank you. Though Christian's grandmother, how old is she? 87. 87 years old, African American. Sound African American sounds amazing. She calls me Reverend Comer. Yeah. Not going to lie, I kind of like that. <laughs> like I think I think we'll let her get away with that one and I won't correct that ever because it's fantastic. But look at what Jesus says next, verse 11. The greatest among you will be your what? Your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Notice, is that a command? Nope. I mean, it's implicit, but it's sure not explicit. That's a statement of reality. You don't believe Jesus? Just read the news. This happens every single day. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be, and on a regular basis, are exalted. Okay, let's just take a step back and take a breath in and out. Jesus is calling out three basic problems in the religious leaders and, by default, the religious culture of his day. First, they place the burden of unrealistic expectations on people. Unlike Jesus, whose yoke was, quote, easy and his burden light, they add to the already kind of crushing weight of life a whole other burden of legalism that even they cannot live up to. Two, they focus on appearance more than substance. They make themselves not only look good, but here's the kicker, make themselves look better than they actually are. But it's a religious kind of show. It's just virtue signaling on Instagram or whatever. There's no real life behind it. It's just a hashtag, it's just a post, it's just a statement, it's just a performance, it's not real, it's for their ego, not for love. And three, they desire status over service. They wanna climb the social ladder up and to the right not follow the way of the cross, what some have called the spirituality of dissent. The word used by Jesus in the rest of the chapter, we don't have time to work through the entire thing. I encourage you to read it on your own time, but the word used over and over and over again by Jesus, in example after example, all through chapter 23, to summarize these three dynamics is the word hypocrisy. Now, it would be really easy to make these three basic problems about them and not about us. Or even, there's a lot of chatter about hypocrisy in the church right now, about leaders and not about followers, about religious kind of pastor type of people and not religious culture in a whole. But let's be honest here. First off, that's not even helpful. Do any of you struggle with these three dynamics at all? Unrealistic expectations. Do you ever place unrealistic expectations on other people that even you struggle to live up to? Any of you? If The answer is no, you're not self-aware. Just join a community and they will help you become that way, right? Um, In spiritual life or in any part of life, whether that's expecting people to always be there for you when you're not always there for them, or expecting them to check in for you when you don't check in for them, or expecting them to love you on your own terms with no respect for their personality or preferences, or expecting other people to never bail when you bail, or here's a very common dynamic, we expect other people to show us mercy when we're quick to show other people judgment, right? It's a two-way street. In the wider culture wars, one of the turnoffs of progressivism right now is the so-called cancel culture phenomenon, which is a a, a symptom that's kind of a a blend of utopianism, of widely unrealistic expectations for people, their behavior, their speech, their purity. I am all for accountability and high moral standards. I'm a pastor from the way of Jesus, so I'm not entirely against it. But in secular culture, there is no laid-out path to become a good person. And when you trip up on the non-existent path, there is no mercy, there is no atonement, there is no forgiveness of sins. It is dog-eat-dog. Dog. Now, my point here isn't to cancel, cancel culture. It's just to point out this dynamic is alive and well today in all of us. Secondly, appearance more than substance. Any of you want to look better than you actually are? I sure do. You think this is a mess? You should, you should actually know what I'm actually like behind the scenes, right? We don't wear ph- phylacteries or tassels, but we love our likes on Instagram and we perfect our selfies and, or we love, if we're a little more sophisticated, we love the letters after our name or if we're professional, the title from our job or career or if we're just like more of a hangout person to one-up each other in cocktail party conversation. From phylacteries then to virtue signaling now, most of us, myself included, want to look not only good but better than we actually are. Three, status over service. For us, it's not the seating arrangement or the title rabbi, I don't know what it is for you, it depends a lot on your socioeconomic background, maybe it's the college you went to or whether or not you went to grad school or how much money you make or what neighborhood you live in or how many followers you have on social media. In a recent survey, this was surprising and not surprising at all, but in a recent survey of Gen Z, the number one aspiration for an entire generation of Americans was to become an influencer, i.e. to become famous. Literally, that's the number one thing in the survey. And the cult of celebrity has infected the church like a disease. And it's not just pastors who are behind it. Have a look at this from Laura Beringer and Scott McKnight in their book, A Church Called Tove. Celebrities don't form on their own. Behind every celebrity pastor is an adoring congregation that both loves and supports the celebrity atmosphere. The development of a celebrity culture also doesn't happen overnight. It begins when a pastor has a driving ambition for fame, but it can't take root unless the congregation supports that ambition. Unfortunately, many people want their pastor to be a spiritual hero or a celebrity at some level. They not only want it, but they often expect it and find themselves believing it about their pastor. Now there's a difference between a celebrity and celebrityism. One is about others' projection; the other is about self-promotion. I think of someone like Tim Keller, who is a household name in the Western Church. And if you don't know, now you know. You're welcome. And he is a gift. I thank God for him. He is a gift to the church. Is he a celebrity? No, not really at all. But similar to Jesus, he is a well-known gift to the church at large. Still. Those, Though few of us ever become famous, at least at that level, the desire for fame or whatever version of status is your preference is all over, and behind it is a deficit of love. Behind most celebrities is a deep father wound or mother wound. Just read a memoir once in a while. As Aristotle put it so many centuries ago, when people don't feel loved, they seek to be admired. My point is, unrealistic expectations, appearance over substance, status over service, those three dynamics summarized by the word hypocrisy are not just a problem for them but for us and I'm guessing for all of us. Do you struggle with this at all? Do any of you not struggle with this? But over against the way of the Pharisees is the way of Jesus. Three basic solutions from Jesus in his teaching. I would summarize them with the three words, mercy, integrity, and humility. One, mercy. Rather than unrealistic expectations, Jesus was full of mercy for people. That beautiful psalm that Bethany read this morning, he knows our frame, that we are dust here one moment, gone the next, that life is hard and full of suffering and we are often tired and not at our best and life comes together and it falls apart and it comes back together again and it falls apart again and that is the human condition and Jesus was full of compassion. His yoke was easy and light, as Hebrews put it. We do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. He knows what it's like to be you, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Jesus was able to hold to a very high moral standard, go read the Sermon on the Mount, and yet show mercy to all, compassion without compromise, something very rare in our culture. Two, integrity, over against kind of appearance more than substance, Jesus was a man of integrity, was the same person in public and as he was in private, the same person all the way through every layer of his personality and his soul. No performance, no fishing for likes on social media to pop up his fragile ego, and no gap between his teaching and his life, between onstage and off. He was integrated first off to God and to himself, who he was and who he wasn't. He was the Father's beloved Son. His identity was inside out, not outside in. It was a gift, not a right, and it was not performed It was deposited into him by the love of God. And third, humility. Instead of status over service, Jesus, of his own free will, became a servant. He took that kind of fork in the road and he went in the exact opposite direction to culture. Listen to Philippians 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, which was ignoble and shameful in his culture. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is Paul's expansion of Jesus' teaching here in Matthew 23. Those who humble themselves will be exalted, and those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Paul's way of saying Jesus was famous for practicing what he preached. He took the role of a servant. He put others ahead of himself. He took the low road. He gave up control and power in self-giving love. This, mercy, integrity, and humility, is a radically different way to hold power. For hundreds of years now in Western culture, there's been a lot of talk about power and the abuse of power from political leaders or religious leaders, from the American revolution's overthrow of the monarchy to Marx and his utopian vision of an egalitarian classless society, to Michel Foucault and the French postmodernist power analysis to critical theory today and social media's quote, speaking truth to power and calling those in power to account. Yet for all of our critique of power, which is right and necessary, Since at least Nixon in the 1960s in our country, it's just been scandal after scandal after failure after failure. On the left and the right, this one is bipartisan. We can't seem to produce an ample supply of leaders to hold power well. I would offer to you that one of the primary reasons of this is because the West way of dealing with power, and really this is global, is to take power away from the powerful and give it to the powerless, to take it away from the dominant group and give it to the marginalized group. This is good and it is right and it is fitting, but it does not go deep enough to solve the problem. The problem is this strategy, it rarely works, and frequently it makes a bad problem worse. Just do a cursory study of the last century, whether you study post-colonial theory or former Soviet bloc countries or Latin America. There are success stories that are beautiful, but they are not very common. Please don't hear what I'm saying right now as a passive-aggressive pushback on justice. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying we need to go deeper. Listen to Mirzlop Volf, the Christian intellectual and Croatian professor now from Yale, who grew up under brutal oppression and, and violent injustice. In his masterpiece, Exclusion and Embrace, which is just staggering at every level, he writes, all too often, he can say this, I can't, but all too often, they, the oppressed or injured, do not want to topple the dominant order. They demand the reshuffling of cards, not another game. They do not blame the game, only the stronger hand of the adversary. Victims need to repent of the fact that all too often they mimic the behavior of the oppressors, let themselves be shaped in the mere image of the enemy." I just want you to consider, I know that's provocative language, I just want you to consider his metaphor that Jesus is not giving us a new hand. Imagine a card game. He's not saying, let's reshuffle the deck and start over and give everybody the same number of cards. He's saying, let's throw the game out altogether. Mm -hmm. The way to hold power for Jesus is not just to take it away from one and give it to another, though there is a time and a place for that that I am in full support of, but it's to hold power with mercy, integrity, and humility. You see, the problem is not power. Read Genesis chapter 3. We were made to hold power, to rule is the word used in Hebrew, as the image of God. It's a way of saying as kings and queens. The problem isn't even that some people have more power than others. Some of that is a necessary evil until Jesus' return. The problem is the abuse of power. People much smarter than I, which is not that hard, argue that the maxim power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely is actually not true. And argue that power reveals what's inside a person and it amplifies its influence for better or for worse. Don't believe me? Watch, what's it called? Falcon and the Winter Soldier. We watch that as a family. That's what the entire thing is about right there. Give a good person power and they will steward it for good on behalf of the powerless. Give an evil person power, they will use and abuse it to gain more power and make the weak pay the bill. What we need is people of mercy, integrity, and humility who give their power away. We need people who follow the way of Jesus. How do we become these types of people? Let me give you three simple practices in a minute or two from the way of Jesus. To grow in mercy, the practice of listening. When we listen to another and we really hear them, hear their pain, hear their story, how they became who they are, how they got to where they are, we cross the chasm of difference that is the cause of so much of our judgment of others. It's very hard to judge someone you understand, and we do this through listening to Another, I would argue that the first and primary skill of learning to live in community is learning to really listen at a soul level to another. To grow in integrity, the practice of secrecy. This is all over the life of Jesus. If you're new to it, it's a very simple practice. You just do something good. It can be major. It can be minor. It can be a glass of cold water. It can be tiny for God, for another, whoever, and you just don't tell a soul. You don't post it on Instagram, not even on Instagram story where it goes away after a while. You don't s- just kind of slip it into a conversation. Oh, when I was you know, serving the poor a few days ago or whatever. You just do it for an audience of one or you do it for somebody that will not even thank you or have gratitude. And you just let that work integrity into the fabric of your being. Because integrity, much of it's about doing the right thing for the right reasons. A lot of it's about motivation, not just behavioral management. Three, to grow in humility is the practice of service. Nothing will humble you like actually following what you say you believe and acting like a servant because then when people treat you like a servant, you're like, hey, oh, maybe my service was just a performance and not actually the desire of my heart. When you serve, the ultimate expression of love because it is self-giving, often without getting anything in return, the reward for serving well is, is serving well and is becoming a man or a woman who is a servant, like Jesus who, quote, made himself a servant in Philippians 2. Listening, secrecy, service. You know who does this very well? Come on, what day is it? Moms, yes, it's Mother's Day. Moms, you, did, you do this, not all of you, but most of you, do this, so I had to work it in at some point. Honestly, you are a bright, shining example of this. As a general rule, and please forgive the bell curve kind of generalization here, but I would argue that men tend to be more selfish than women. You can normally spot this in little children, even in egalitarian homes and that singles and couples with no kids tend to be more selfish than parents. Now, I'm not trying to say that to insult any of you in the room. I'm just trying to say all of us who are not a mom, which is a lot, we have a lot to learn from you moms. Mothering and parenting in general is a daily invitation to die to self. As a mom, you do a lot of listening, right, to stuff that you do not care about. And trust me, I don't know at what point you start caring, but it's—I it's, think it's—I think they're like 20-something before it's interesting to you. At that point, you do a lot of listening, you do a lot of secrecy. Most of what you do every day doesn't go on any feed or in. Nobody says thank you. Nobody says a round of applause. And you do a lot of serving. You will never work harder at anything in your life, you moms and you dads, for zero pay. Actually, it costs you quite a bit of money and for very little gratitude. And what gratitude you do get tends to be because you make them say thank you to you, which just doesn't have the same effect, right? And no matter how, here's the kicker, like as a parent of teenager, no matter how hard you try, you will inevitably, inevitably fail. You will hurt and wound your children, even if you're a good parent, and they will end up in therapy at some point. And if not, then you haven't done a good job with them. <laughs> Which is why so many abandon their children. Either walk out, or, or, or maybe they're there in the home, but just let the kids figure out life on their own. That's why Mother's Day is a, is a pain point for a growing number of people in our country with the breakdown of the family. There are other invitations besides parenting to the cruciform life, marriage, suffering, disease, death, even vocation. Your work can be a form of that. But parenting is one of the primary invitations that a lot of us receive to follow the cruciform way of Jesus. In Philippians chapter two, to take the low place, to give up our rights, to become a servant. Moms, you do this so well, and we just wanna honor you. And not just honor you, we want to imitate you and becoming like Jesus. You know who doesn't do this very well a lot of the time? Pastors, like myself. I mean, not me, but Gerald really has an issue with this. This is, this is sober, I'm just about done, but this is sobering for me. I spent hours in research on chapter 23. We decided not to cover each line due to time, but man, it was like not a fun week for me at all. It made me think of that line in James. You know, it's a great word of advice. Let not many of you become teachers because you will receive a stricter judgment. That's a great motivation there to go into pastoral work. Thank you. It's not my favorite verse in the Bible. Not my quote life verse. But the higher quote you are in church, the higher standard you are held to. With increased authority comes increased accountability. And I have more than a little Pharisee in me I do my very best to be honest with you and share from my weaknesses as much or more than my strength. It's a lot easier to share out of my weaknesses because I have plenty of material. Um, but I work hard, and a lot of that time, a lot of the time, vulnerability is all that I have to offer you. But sometimes I will hear people say to me or chat to me, and they're like, "Yeah, you're exaggerating. You're not really like." uptight at home or grumpy with your kids or critical to your wife. Your wife is wonderful. How could you ever be critical of her? No, I really am. I just want to clarify. (laughs) I I am what I say, and I say what I am, right? Like, I'm as bad as I make myself sound. I just need you to understand that. And I came of age in an era of pastor scandals. Over the last 10 years, we've seen so many pastors fall not because of theology, I mean, there are examples of that too, for sure, but because their life behind the scenes did not measure up, they did not practice what they preach in Jesus' language. Often there was no adultery and there was no heresy, but they did not hold power with mercy, integrity, and humility. I remember when um, T was pregnant with our first, who is 15 right now, and I got really scared. I was excited to become a dad, But I got scared because of the lousy reputation of pastor's kids. I am a pastor's kid, son of a pastor, and great family, imperfect, but great family. All four of us kids are following Jesus. And I never really understood the math on why pastor's children have such a lousy reputation. You think we would at least be like middle of the bell curve, and is it too optimistic to think that the pastor of the church would maybe be like a little forward on the bell curve? Um, parenting is not technique. It's not command and control. It's not like if you do the right thing, your children, children are not widgets. They have this thing called agency that is infuriating. But... Um, <laughs> But, you know, you would think that pastors would at least hit the middle of the bell curve. It's not a little farther forward. Why is this a stereotype? So when she was pregnant, I went around to a number of kind of older, wiser pastors. And I just asked, like, why is that? This does not make sense to me. Why is it? And I asked a number, and I was expecting them to say, my get, my hypothesis was like, maybe it's because of the workload, so many hours, maybe it's because of all the criticism that you get, maybe it's because of the kind of emotional weight of the pastoral role. None of them said a word about any of that. All of them gave me the exact same answer, answer without even thinking in one word. You know what it was? Hypocrisy. Every single one. Why is it hypocrisy? When dad or mom is one person on stage and another person off, it is the ultimate turnoff to a child, biological or spiritual. That was and still is. I say that not to judge other pastors. That is sobering for me, and that is a daily call to repent to God and to my three children, both of which I have to do on a daily, if not weekly, basis. For all the ways that I do not live up to Jesus' compelling vision of what a religious leader is to be. But as I studied the passage, I was so moved by the ending. It's a surprise ending. Just We'll just end here. Just turn down to verse 37. At the very end, there's a, a long section of indictment against the Pharisees. We don't have time to cover. And then read what Jesus says at the end. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets, spiritual leaders from Jesus, and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is Jesus most, one of Jesus' most vivid word pictures, and it is a picture of a mother hen caught in a farmyard fire who is covering her chicks, who is giving her life to save them from the fire. Most animals run from fire, but there are stories recorded of mother hens cover, doing just this, covering their chicks, and when the fire has burned through, the mother is dead, but the chicks are still alive. This is what Jesus has done for all of us, Pharisee and not. He is the nurturing, loving mother who sees the fire coming, a reference here in Matthew to the destruction of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount in AD 70 when it was literally burned to the ground because the religious leaders of the day, for the most part, rejected Jesus as the Messiah, rejected his teachings on nonviolence, and instead went to war against Rome and lost spectacularly. Jesus is weeping over the city. Every indictment in this what does not sound very Mr. Rogers Rogersy kind of chapter is love. It's tough love, but it is love. It is the love of a fierce mother for her child who has gone astray. It is a loving warning from Mother Jesus who gave his life on the cross to cover us from the fire and not just for us, but for all Jesus had the remarkable maturity so rare in human beings to be hurt by the abuse of power from religious leaders and not to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Every once in a while you see this rare level of emotional dexterity in someone like a Philip Yancey or a Desmond Tutu or a Saint Teresa, but it is so very rare. And not only did Jesus not give up on the church, but he forgave those who hurt him. As he was killed, he said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. How do we forgive, in Jesus' language, those who have sinned against us, even if those are pastors from our previous experience or present? How do we forgive ourselves at some level for all of the ways that we do not measure up and hypocrisy and appearance and wanting to look better than we are is in all of our bodies. We come to Jesus on the cross. We let him cover us. How I've longed to cover you, to bring you close to myself, Jesus said. We let him do just that. We let him cover us. We let him bring us close to himself and cover us from the fire and then transform us into children who are like our Father, who are full of mercy, integrity, and humility. May it be so.